this week on the It's a Monkey podcast. I think that we are going to run into a situation where it, it's likely that there simply aren't enough jobs out there, especially for people of you know more average capability. And at that point, we have to consider a more radical solution. You know, education isn't going to cut it. And I think that something along the lines of a guaranteed income where everyone in society has access to at least a minimum livable income may be the way we need to go. Thank you for listening to the It's a Monkey podcast. We are taking a couple of weeks break over the Easter holiday in Australia. We'll be back in a week or two with some live podcasts. But in the meantime, we're going to be playing you some fantastic repeat shows of previous podcasts that we know you will enjoy. Thank you for listening to the It's a Monkey podcast. You're back with It's a Monkey podcast where we talk about everything relating to tech, the tech economy, the impact of technological advancements. And we like to think of ourselves at Manage Flitter as a bit of a philosophical bunch. And uh, one of the topics that rears its head very, very regularly is talking about uh, robots and artificial intelligence and when robots would wake up and we have these team lunches where there's intense debate and there's there's uh, different schools of thought of uh, when, when robots are going to wake up, uh, the impact, etc., so I was very excited um, the other day to stumble upon a book called The Rise of the Robots, Technology and the Threat of the Jobless Future. And um, I'm very excited to say I've managed to uh, get the author of that book, Martin Ford, who's also um, based in Silicon Valley, a tech entrepreneur who um, uh, wrote that book, um, at the end of my Skype line to join us uh, on the podcast. Martin, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, Martin, um, firstly, um, this isn't your first book around the, um, this area. What's, what led you to your interest in this particular area of uh, tech and tech advancement? Well, I wrote my first book on this about five years ago, and the thing that, that kind of got me thinking about it is that I've run a small software business in Silicon Valley, and I've seen the impact on that business. I mean, when I started in the mid-1990s, uh, software was a pretty labor-intensive business. You know, you needed people to... Uh, produce physical media, you know, because software was shipped on CD-ROMs, and then there were people to pack all of that up into physical packages that were sent off to customers. And really, within just a few years, all of that kind of evaporated. And now, of course, software is delivered electronically, or it's just hosted in the cloud. And so, a lot of jobs for what you might think of as average people in in the software business have just kind of disappeared. And I sort of viewed that as a preview of what was coming for the entire economy as artificial intelligence and robotics really sort of gain traction. And I believe these days they're robots that um, fix themselves. So if there's something, if, if they have a proverbial screw loose or, or they need a part that replaces, they can actually self-amend themselves. So they don't even need the humans to maintain those robots anymore. Right. To some extent, that's becoming true, not just in terms of robots, but in terms of, of everything. You know, one of one of the big trends we're going to be looking at is the Internet of Things, where everything is sort of connected and able to communicate. And you're increasingly going to see, you know, smart diagnostic algorithms operating across all these systems that, that really allow them to sort of maintain themselves. So one of the myths out there is that if we have lots of robots, there'll be huge numbers of jobs for people to fix the robots and I'm afraid that's kind of wishful thinking. Okay, so explain to me, um, you know, in our industry, I'm also a tech entrepreneur. One of the, if not the biggest challenge we currently face is a skills shortage. 
Um, and one of the arguments you make in your book is that um, even um, you know professionals such as lawyers and um, yeah, software developers will be impacted by these advancements. Currently, there seems to be a really big gap between those two scenarios. Fill me in on how um, you see that that gap's actually going to um, shrink and if and and totally actually the the field uh, the playing field totally change. Well, first of all, it's possible for you know, a shortage of people with very specific skills and capabilities to coexist with a general, um, you know, general slack in the, in the market for more average people. And I think that that's the kind of the future we're moving toward. Um, you know, you can't take all of the average people out there and train them all to be data scientists or to have some very specific skill levels. So that's one of the problems we face. But beyond that, it's also true that the Smart algorithms, especially in areas like machine learning, are, are starting at least um, to some extent to encroach on more skilled jobs. And we see plenty of examples of that already in terms of like uh, lawyers, uh, paralegals are being ap- impacted by uh, smart algorithms that can do document review. We see um, journalism being impacted by algorithms that are capable of, of generating at least basic news stories, especially in areas like sports reporting and and uh, business reporting. So I think that as we look toward the future, there will be a larger and larger impact on people that do have relatively high skill levels. In other words, people who have graduated from college and so forth. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize that some of the reports that they're reading in finance and sports are actually um, generated by a computer. That's right. Some of the main media companies are using these technologies, and a lot of them are not eager to disclose that fact. They don't really want people to know that a lot of their stories are generated autonomously. Um, but it is you know, a growing trend. And right now, it is primarily more formulaic type stories in, in areas like financial reporting and so forth. But the technology is getting better and better. It already goes way beyond simply being able to plug numbers into some completely standard format. I mean, it's already much smarter than that. And it's going to get better and better. I want to cover um, shortly some of the um, um, impacts on on capitalism as a as a, as a sort of framework that you speak about. But before that, um, one of the questions that we, we we like to philosophize on internally is, and I would like your opinion on it, is: is when do you feel that? Um, robots will wake up when will they get self-awareness is it something that um you know may happen within the next five years or is it still hundreds of years away i think it's fairly far out certainly i would be extremely surprised if it happened in anything like the next five to ten years uh you have heard some very high profile people sort of warning us of the implications of that um, particularly stephen hawking and uh, elon musk and so forth have been worrying a, a lot about super intelligent machines and how they may threaten humanity. And I don't think that that's a ridiculous concern that we should completely dismiss, but I do think that it's pretty far out. I mean, it's probably 20, 30 years at a minimum away. I think that what we see are these people, you know, giving us these warnings are really smart, accomplished people, but they're not actually working in artificial intelligence research. And if you talk to the people actually working on the problem, they're a bit more humble in terms of, you know, how far we are along with that. So I, I think that's pretty far out. I mean, when that does happen, and I believe, and I'm, I'm you know, sort of a, 
a, a, a, a punter, so to speak. I don't have any particular expertise in the area, but I just more, more just based on the fact of the, the rate that technology compounds. And I just feel that eventually, you know, the mere processing power, um, we will, you know, the machines will wake up. I mean, it's obviously going to be a very significant cultural, social um, um, impact on society if machines actually get self-awareness of any significant sort of um, degree. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if that happens, if machines become self-aware and, and they become as smart or, or likely much smarter than human beings, then, I, I mean, as Stephen Hawking said, that would be the biggest thing that has ever happened in history, and I, I think that's probably right. I mean, that would be just an enormously disruptive change. For, for one thing, um, j just minimally, I mean, essentially all the jobs would go away at that point. I mean, even, even the very smartest people with the highest level of education um, wouldn't be competitive with super intelligent machines. So, I mean, it would have a fantastic impact on employment. But of course, beyond that, there's the question of whether the machines might actually threaten us or, or take over. And those are, are real risks at that point. There's no doubt, even though it sounds very far-fetched and it's something that has been explored in, in lots of science fiction novels and movies. And therefore, it sounds kind of crazy and it's easy to laugh at it. Uh, it at that point, it would be a real concern, no doubt about it. Well, before we go, I mean, instead of going down that, uh, you know, slightly further down that track, let's talk about what you speak a little bit more about in your book of uh, professionals like lawyers or journalists being impacted. And you argue that this, um, you, you know, will drive income inequality and you, you propose some sort of, um, s some remedies, some, some sort of, uh, you, you know, changes to the capitalist framework to actually address these. Talk, uh, talk us through some of your thoughts around that. Well, the, the traditional solution to the impact of technology on the job market has always been education. The idea is if automation or robots take your low-skill job, then you should go back to school or get some more training and then you can move up the skills ladder. I think that, that we're kind of running into the end game on that for two reasons. One is that you know there's there's a limit to the capability of the average person. Not everyone can train to be you know a PhD level uh, data scientist or 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 something that that requires really an incredible amount of skill and creativity and so forth. And the second problem, as I pointed out, is that these machines are increasingly coming after many of those skilled jobs. In fact, it turns out that that if you've got a relatively routine white-collar job where you're sitting in front of a computer doing the same kinds of things, manipulating information again and again, that job may actually be easier to automate than someone who's got a low-skilled job that actually requires you know, physically manipulating the environment. You don't need any expensive robots and so forth to do it at that point. So I think that we are going to run into a situation where it, it's likely that there simply aren't enough jobs out there, especially for people of, you know, more average capability. And at that point, we have to consider a more radical solution. You know, education isn't going to cut it. And I think that something along the lines of a guaranteed income where everyone in society has access to at least a minimum livable income may be the way we need to go. And there will be really two reasons for that. The first is that, of course, people have to survive economically. And the second thing is that we need people to be consumers. You know, we need people that are capable of buying the products and services that are produced by the economy. If we don't have that, then you know, there's a real to to capitalism and to economic growth and to the viability of um, our economy as it exists today. You know, we need people to actually drive the economy by being able to buy the things that are produced. 
How's the tax base going to support that? And how, how practically do you see this actually as playing out? Well, at, at the moment, it's not very practical. I mean, it's it's certainly in the United States where, you know, we're, we're more conservative than probably Australia and certainly more than a lot of European con- countries. Uh, it's almost unthinkable that we could have this kind of a solution. But that's the paradox. I think that, that it's in one sense, almost unthinkable that we could do this. And on the other, the other side of that is that it at some point becomes inevitable that I think we will have to do it. So I'm not sure exactly how that plays out. In terms of how you pay for it, obviously it would require higher taxes. Part of that would be more progressive taxes because we are seeing continuing inequality where all the income is really concentrating at the top in the hands of just a few wealthy people. And those are the people that are capitalists and, in effect, own the machines. And that, that's something that I likely think will continue and get worse and worse. And so we're simply going to have to figure out a way to tax those people and, and get some of that money so we can recirculate it. I think that there are other opportunities for other kinds of tax as well. Um, a carbon tax might be one obvious thing that we, we should be doing anyway and would be one way to raise some revenue. So I think that there are a variety of taxation schemes there, but ultimately we're going to have to, to look at that in order to sort of make this work going forward. I mean, it's an issue that gets spoken about a lot in Australia with uh, our shrinking tax base, aging population, massive health care costs, and um, trying to get the books to balance gets harder and harder every year. So um, we, we lucky we don't have the sort of income inequality that seems to um, be more prevalent in the U.S., but we certainly, our tax base uh, is under a lot of pressure, and there's even talk that eventually our nationalized health care scheme will, uh, will implode. Right. But you see, the problem is that the tax base is dependent on a vibrant economy. So if you get into a situation where there aren't enough people out there to drive the economy, to keep buying the things produced, then, you know, that ultimately will, of course, threaten the tax base as well, because that's, you know, where it all comes from. So it's really important to keep that cycle going, you know, to make sure that that the people at the bottom of the income distribution have also got access to a, a reasonable income so that they can continue to act as consumers. And that's one of the arguments for having a high minimum wage. And uh, one of the arguments why Australia has been quite successful, even despite a high minimum wage, is the people with the high minimum wage, guess what they do with that high minimum wage? They spend it and it puts it back into the economy and, and it keeps on going. Whereas a low minimum wage, it's just sort of a bit of a race to the bottom and they don't have anything to spend and it actually gums up the economy and slows it down. That's right. Uh, the, the problem with that going forward, of course, is that if the jobs are increasingly automated, then you know a minimum wage won't solve the problem. In fact, in, in some cases, it may worsen the problem because it increases the incentive for innovation. So that's why I think that in the future, we may have to move away from you know having a minimum wage in terms of what's paid to employees and instead have a minimum income. So tell us, um, uh, um, if someone, someone listening, I'm sure, you know, one of the, the they're very intrigued by, um, you know, what robots are capable of these days. Give us a couple of examples of, you know, the journalist stories, uh, writing stories is the one example. What are some other interesting areas where robots are uh, getting involved that, that people might not be aware of? I think I saw a video the other day in Japan of some, um, some nurse type robot um, in the hospital there. Right, there are lots of innovations happening. I mean, elder care—the idea of, of health, you know, healthcare and elder care, you know, taking care of older people—is one area that has, you know, tremendous 
potential. It's an area where we really need robots because, you know, almost every industrialized society is seeing huge costs from an aging population. Unfortunately, it's really a challenge because uh, in order to do that, you need a robot that's just got extraordinary dexterity and flexibility and so forth. So we're seeing some sort of baby steps in that area um, where we're really seeing a lot of progress. Of course, one area is self-driving cars. I mean, we we're just seeing a terrific amount of progress there. And if those become viable, then that's directly going to threaten millions and millions of jobs for for professional drivers, potentially. Um, actually, you know, driving vehicles is the most common occupation for for men in the United States. So, wow. I mean, if all that's... those jobs go away, huh. um, you know, that, that, that's a big problem, obviously. Uh there's, there's a company here in Silicon Valley that I mentioned in my book that has built a robot specifically geared toward loading and unloading boxes. And this is a, a robot with machine vision that can look at a stack of boxes and figure out how to, you know, pick up the boxes and move them just as a human worker would. And this is really something that's quite new. I mean, previous, you know, robots in factories and so forth have been around for a long time, but generally they've been you know, really dependent on precise positioning and timing. In other words, they're, they're kind of tightly choreographed. They depend on a factory where everything is timed exactly and they can, they can move things and, and, you know, do things that are precisely repetitive. But as soon as you get into a situation that's unpredictable where you've got to use vision and hand-eye coordination to do things, then the robots have really fallen short. But we're now seeing real progress in that area. And this, this, system that can actually load and unload boxes based on machine vision is one good example of that, of how, you know, the robots are really pushing into areas that simply haven't been, you know, accessible to this technology before. And that's going to continue to accelerate. And I mean, it's ultimately, I think, going to be a huge number of jobs that are impacted, both blue-collar jobs that are impacted by actual robots and white-collar jobs that are impacted by smart algorithms like the examples I gave in, in the area of law and journalism and so forth. So this is just a, a big wave of disruption that I think is going to unfold probably over the next 10 to 20 years. So if uh, someone's listening to the podcast and maybe they are parents or someone's, you know, about to head into university, what, um, you, you know, what area of study or skills could they perhaps head to if they do have the choice to perhaps, you know, insulate themselves or, or protect themselves? Obviously, there's lots of unpredictability in the world, but are there any obvious areas that could definitely, you know, never be um, replaced or under threat, even from, you, you know, smart machine learning or, or, or latest robotic innovations? I, you know, there's nothing that, it, that would never be threatened. I mean, there's nothing that's completely safe forever. I mean, as we were saying earlier, people worry about the fact that the machines are going to wake up and become super intelligent. I mean, if that happens, then clearly nothing is safe. Uh, for the foreseeable future, I think healthcare is certainly one good area, especially if you're working in an area like nursing where you interact directly with patients and it needs lots of dexterity and mobility and so forth. That's an area that's very hard to automate. So I think that for the foreseeable future, jobs in that area and, and similarly in, in medicine and doctors that, that require that kind of interaction are, are probably relatively safe. Uh, in general, I think that if you're starting out and you're, you're thinking of educating yourself, you want to get as much education as you can, it's better to probably to study a technical field than, than to not do so. And, but the main thing would be to be flexible, you know, to learn how to learn and to expect it in the future 
whatever you start out doing is likely going to evaporate at some point and you may have to switch to something else. I mean, that's, that's kind of easy advice to give. The reality is that for many people, it's not easy to make that transition, especially if it, if it occurs beyond, you know, a certain age when people get older, it's harder and harder for them to transition into something new. So, uh, you know, that's good advice, but we should also understand as a society that a lot of people will probably have great difficulty making this kind of transition. And that's one of the reasons I think that we're going to need, you know, new, more radical policies, perhaps something like a guaranteed income eventually. Change is hard as uh, the, the um, cab drivers in, in Paris um, a little while ago definitely made very clear when they uh, caused a riot after the, uh, after the entry of UberX, or, or which I'm not sure what they called it, their Uber Pop or something like that. That's right. And that's sort of a preview of what may be coming. Uh, and that's, you know, just Uber. But imagine what it's going to be like when, when, Uber's cars are self-driving and there's no human beings involved at all, then, then I mean, it's going to be even more dramatic. And, and what we're really seeing is that kind of impact uh, really across the board, not just in driving jobs, not just in any one industry, but really much more broad-based than that. And that's why I think that, you know, we really are going to have to start to think about this and have a, a conversation about it because we could be looking at a very significant disruption going forward. So how do we know that you're not just a smart algorithm, Martin? <laughs> <laughs> well, at this point, you can be pretty safe that I'm not, I think. But, but you know, 20 years from now, who's, who knows? You know, I, I might be a, a machine that's talking to you. So I believe you're coming to, um, you're going to be um, visiting Sydney for the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, which is happening, I believe, just on a week at the Sydney Opera House. That's right. It's uh, September 5th and 6th, and I'm, I'm going to be speaking there about, about all of this, and there will be lots of other good speakers too. So, um, yeah, I think it will be a really terrific opportunity. It will be my first time in Sydney, so I'm very excited about it. Fantastic. It's, um, it's a brilliant city, and uh, spring, spring is on the way. And it's, I've been to that festival before, and I might head down if some of the tickets aren't um, sold out. And it's, uh, you know, they, they intentionally try to have a bit of provocative um, topics and discussions. And it's uh, no better location in the world. So um, I, I hope you'll enjoy it. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Martin, uh, thank you very much for joining us on the, the It's a Monkey podcast. Martin Ford is uh, the author of um, Rise of the Robots, Technology and the Threat of a Jobless Future. Um, you can get it on Amazon, Kindle, etc., etc. We'll put um, a link on the show notes. And uh, interesting future ahead, Martin, and uh, maybe we'll touch base uh, in, a, in a couple of years and, we're, and we'll see how the progress is going. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thanks again for having me. 